Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, we'll be looking at the 20th chapter this evening. Deuteronomy chapter 20, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter that is verses 1 through 20. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in in the battle and another man dedicate it. Also Also what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. The officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be, that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, You shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you, can, if you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which, which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down. Siege works against the city that makes war with you until 
it is subdued. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, how we do ask for your blessing now on the preaching of your word, both in the preaching of it and in the hearing of it. Lord, even as we come to uh, laws which seem more foreign to us, which seem more removed from us, Lord, help us yet to see the practical implications of them. Help us to understand, Lord, how it is that people are to conduct themselves in war. And Lord, may it be that even this area of your word, which is uh, seldom taught and read, that it would yet still inform people and their consciences well, that we would understand what is just when it comes to war, and that we would so seek to live godly lives in every area of our lives, even this one. For Lord, we do ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come now to laws in the book of Deuteronomy concerning wars. All of Deuteronomy chapter 20 is concerned with how to conduct uh, just warfare. That is the, the topic of discussion that Moses gives in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now, as we think about this, laws concerning warfare, uh, it's something that is probably the case for everyone here. It's very common. There's a natural sense when we think about warfare for us to understand that there is a kind of evil that's associated with warfare. And we even see this if we consider the fact that one of the great promises that is made for the people of God and just for salvation in the end times is that there will be no more wars, that God will cause wars to cease from the ends of the earth. We think of uh, Isaiah chapter 2 or Micah chapter 4, where there is this promise that those who have their, their weapons of war, they'll beat them in the plowshares because there will be no more war. And that's one of the ways that we will know that the end will, will be here because there will be uh, no more wars. There's a natural sense of evil of wars and therefore of a time when wars will in fact cease and end. And this is because in wars there is mass death, mass destruction, there's violence, there's hatred. There's all kinds of destructive things that happen in war. And even more than that, even after wars are fought, there is a continued lasting effect on all those who fight in wars. Many people, when they come uh, back from fighting in wars, they'll struggle with PTSD, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it will affect them, some people, for the rest of their lives. They will be affected uh, by the wars in which they fought. Now, in light of these statements about wars in general, the, a question that could then be asked is, do, does the Bible then condemn the fighting of all wars? And the answer to that is No. Even though there is, in a, in a sense, a natural evil that comes along with war, there are wars that can be fought justly. And so Israel is not commanded to stay away from war, but rather to conduct war in a way that's just. And so there, there is a, a sense in which the Bible does not condemn all wars. We even see this, just so you can see that it's not just an Old Testament thing, we even see this in the New Testament as well. The New Testament does not condemn all wars. It requires that the fighting of wars must be done justly. So for instance, in Luke chapter 3, there are soldiers that come to John the Baptist and they ask him what they are to do to be living godly and righteous lives. He does not tell them that they should never fight in wars. He rather says, do not defraud people. Do not use the, the, the power and influence that has been given to you as soldiers of the Roman army to uh, take advantage of other people. Conduct yourselves well, but 
by implication, he does not condemn the fighting of wars. Wars can be fought correctly in the scriptures. We are not to, to think that the Bible condemns all wars. Now, this is an important thing to consider. It's an important thing for you to understand before a war is fought, Many people will not actually ever fight in war, but we need to understand what the Bible says about war because there are many people who do fight in wars. And even if you never fight in a war, you may have a relative that fights in a war. And if that is the case, it is important that we train our consciences according to the word of God such that we understand what is a violation of God's law and what is not a violation of God's law when it comes to taking life in war. Remember, this is a continuation of the Sixth Commandment. It's a continuation of Moses' description of the Sixth Commandment. Last week, we looked at the ways in which the cities of refuge uh, tell us things about uh, what is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. We saw the importance of intention and a number of other things that's connected to it. And here we have uh, Moses' exposition of taking life justly in war. Now, again, the reason this is important is because there are many people who struggle with PTSD, and part of the reason why they do it why they do struggle with it is because of feelings of guilt. They, people feel guilty about the things that they have done in war. Now, some taking of life in war is just. And when that's the case, it is important for people who struggle with feelings of guilt because of things they've done in war, if, if they've taken a life justly according to the scriptures, that they train their consciences according to the word of God and that they, in that in this way, the Bible can help remove feelings of guilt and therefore even the, uh, the guilt that's associated with PTSD. If there is guilt in war, then the Bible teaches you what that is, and it also teaches you how to find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these, these issues with regard to war are in fact quite important, and they are things that we need to understand. We need to understand so that we know what it is, what is sinful when it comes to war and the taking of life. Because... Not all wars are sinful just because they are war. Not everything, not all taking of life in war needs to be something that burdens the conscience. There is a righteous taking of life. We even see this you know, throughout the scriptures as God will often fight for his people. He fights for his people in, in war. We see this, for instance, when uh, a lot of these laws, particularly the, the last section of Deuteronomy chapter 20, is applied in the days of Joshua, where there are many, many wars that are fought. Many, many Canaanites are killed and destroyed. We even we get a little bit of the legislation here with, with regard to that, how the Israelites were to conduct themselves uh, in war as they went in, into the land of Canaan. Uh, the reason why they were the, none, of the Can the, none of the Israelites were supposed to feel guilty about that is because God had uh, expressly told them that this was a just war. It was a, a carrying out of his justice and his execution, and therefore there was no violation uh, of any commandment, and it was not wrong for the taking uh, of life in that situation. And so it's important then that we consider uh, God's commandments and the way in which Moses' instructions relate to warfare. Ultimately, what we see is that God is with his people when they are faithful and fight in just wars. God is with his people when they're faithful and fight in just wars. Now, we'll look at this passage under two headings. First in verses 1 to 9, we'll consider the preparation for warfare. So verses 1 to 9 deal with instructions for the people of God before they actually enter into warfare. So it's, it, it's related to preparation. And then in verses 10 through 20, Moses gives instructions for the people for how they are conduct themselves how are they how they are to conduct themselves in warfare. 
So when they actually fight, what are they to do? How, do, how can you conduct yourself in war justly? So that's the, the, the topic of verses 10 through 20. So again, those two, preparation for warfare, but so uh, laws concerning warfare before you actually enter into warfare and then actually conducting yourself uh, in fighting in verses uh, 10 through 20. Now, as we, as we look at verses 1 through 9, what you'll notice is, particularly in the first verse, the first verse really acts as a heading for all of verses 1 through 9. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The main thing that uh, Moses wants the people of God to know before they go into a battle is that they are not to fear when they go into the battle. They are not to fear because it is, in fact, God that fights for them. And this is reiterated even uh, a, a few times in this section in verses 1 through 9. For instance, the, the priest, we are told, is to come out in verses 2 to 4, and he's to speak to the people each time they go out into battle. And the priest is to remind them that God is, in fact, going to fight for them. And if God's going to fight for them, then they have no reason to fear. They have no reason to fear. And in fact, it's then said even again at the end, at the end of this passage in verse 8, this section of this passage in verse 8, uh, that the officers then are to speak to the people and they are to say, if any of you are fearful, then you are not to go into battle. You are not to go into battle because it is, uh, if you are fearful, then you may cause the hearts of your brothers to be fearful and this could actually have a detrimental effect on the battle. We're even told here something of, of what is required to do conduct warfare well. And that is that all those who are going to fight in war must, uh, in fact, not be afraid. They must be strong and courageous because it is uh, one person who is not strong and courageous who may cause others not to be strong and courageous. Now, you'll notice here that uh, over and over again it is said that the reason why the people of God are not to be afraid is because God fights for his people. God is with them when they go into the battle. And even we are told uh, in verses 2 to 4 that really the battle belongs to the Lord, that it is God who is with you to fight for you, as the priest is to say, against your enemies, to save you. Now, there is some way, there is some sense in which this is, does not apply exactly to us today. No nation can claim uh, the same kind of presence of God as the Israelites did, such that in all their wars, God is with them. In the same way, that's not, that's not the case. However, there is still a general principle that applies. If you are going to war, if you know someone that's going to war, if you are conducting yourself well, if you're a Christian, then you can know that God is with you. God is with you even as you fight. And if the war is just, and there, is, there are such things as just wars today, not, not every side in a war is, is equally uh, right and good. Uh, there are sides in wars that are, uh, that are fighting to uphold righteousness and justice according to the Bible. Even if they don't name the name of Christ, there's still, uh, by the Lord's uh, common grace, general principles of goodness that people uphold. And so, for instance, if we think of, for instance, like World War II, uh, it is right and good to fight against the Nazis because they, they were an evil regime. It's, that, that, is, that would be conducting yourself in a way that's godly and righteous. A Christian who fights in that war is fighting a just war. And if he conducts himself according to the scriptures, then the taking of life is, is, is a good thing. It's, it's a good thing. God is fighting uh, for the, uh, that person and will be with that person. Now, this doesn't mean that if a Christian goes out to war, that without exception, uh, the Christian will come back alive. 
it may be that Christian, a Christian will die in, in war. We even see this in the legislation that Moses gives. He says, you know, uh, if you have a, a house that you just built or a vineyard that you just planted or a wife that you betrothed um, and, you, and you've not actually married her, uh, then you're not to go to war because you may die. So, so even for the Israelites who had God with them, there was still this understanding that you may die in war. God is with you. He will fight with you and for you. And yet it is not a 100% guarantee that uh, every single person who is a Christian will in fact come back. However, for the Christian, it does mean that it, in general, this principle does apply, that, that God does protect his people, that uh, in this sense, uh, there may be times when Christians are preserved in war, where uh, non-Christians are not, or where they otherwise uh, would not have been. And, and if a Christian loses his life fighting a just war, that God is with him even in his death. And so in all those cases, then, it is God's presence with the Christian that is to remove all fear as he goes in to fight in a war. Now, the reason for this, the grounds for this, as the priests say, and as Moses says in verse 1, is because God has delivered the people from Egypt. So as we've seen this principle applied in so many different areas in the book of Deuteronomy, so here Moses applies it again to war. When you go out and fight, you are to remember that God has saved you. It is God's uh, past uh, work of salvation that guarantees future blessings, future future uh, revelations of God's grace and goodness to you. And so we've seen this particularly, Moses was, was very keen to emphasize this over and over again in chapters 6 through 11, that all of the things that God requires of the people of God in loving him, they're all rooted in God's past act of salvation. But we see this also with war. Uh, the reason why the Israelites were not to fear when they go out to, to fight in a war is because God had already delivered them from the greatest enemy that they would ever face uh, in this earthly life, which was the Egyptians. God had already defeated the Egyptians, and therefore, they are not to fear. And in this way, uh, a Christian then, if a Christian is fighting in a just war, he actually has even greater grounds for confidence and lack of fear. Because he looks back, as we've seen over and over again, he looks back to the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has redeemed you from Satan. He's defeated your enemy. And he will ultimately defeat all of your enemies. And that is the way in which the Christian is uh, to fight a godly war and to fight in a godly way such that he can act courageously. Uh, courage is a virtue. It's a virtue that is needed. And a Christian to act godly in war is to act to, to act godly in a war is to act in a courageous way. This is what was required of all of the Israelites that they would be courageous. That they would be courageous, and this is uh, the way in which even if you if you find yourself in a situation where you are to go to war, or if you know someone who's going to war and they are struggling with feeling afraid, this would be a way to encourage them if they're a Christian. Remind them of, of the, the, the great uh, virtue of courage and the way in which the, that you can get courage, which is by casting yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ, by remembering that he is the one who fights for you. Now, you'll notice as well that in verses 5 through 7, there are other ways in which someone can be exempt from going to war. So in verse 8, we have the one exemption that's set apart from the other three. There's, so there's four in verses 5 through 8. Verse 8 is set apart from verses 5 to 7. Verse 8 is, if you are afraid, then you are uh, not to go to war. In verses 5 to 7, there are three other exemptions. And that is, if you have built a house, 
and yet you've not dedicated it, so you've not been able to, to experience the blessings of that house, or if you planted a vineyard, or if you're betrothed to a woman and yet you've not married her. Uh, in all of these ways, there are exemptions from war. Now, the thing that ties all of these together are that they're all related to the establishing of a home. They're, they're related to the blessings that the people of God were told that they would have as they enter into the promised land. They would have the blessings of family. And so one of the things that we see here is the great importance uh, of family and of the home. That if you were on the verge of establishing a family, then you were exempt from all wars. Such that the, the blessings of the family and the ability to establish a home in some ways supersedes even national emergencies that would require the mustering of men to go fight in a war. That, that the, the establishing of families is actually that important, that Moses says uh, you are exempt from war if you, are, if you find yourself in this situation. As one commentator put it, he says, policies granting military exemption compassionately affirm family and domestic value and the right to enjoy the blessings of life. There, there is a right to enjoy these, and in recognition of this, those who are on the verge of, of coming into these uh, are, in fact, uh, not uh, to be required to go to war. And uh, part of the reason for this, too, is because um, it is considered a curse. You're cursed of God in some ways. If you, if you are on the edge, of, if, you, if you build a house, but another man lives in it. If you betroth yourself to a wife, but another man marries her. Uh, that's part of the, uh, it's language very similar to the curses that are found in the book of Deuteronomy itself. And so what Moses is saying is you are a blessed people. God's going to fight for you. There is no reason to put yourself in a situation where you will end up bearing the curses of God and you will not be able to enjoy the good blessings that God has given to you. There's no reason for it. God is going to fight for his people and you have a right to those blessings. And th this even applies today then. when If you find yourself uh, in a position where you may go to war or if you know someone who may go to war, a family member, friend, that sort of thing, you need to keep this in mind. Um, if you are engaged to be married, what will that do if you go to war and then do not come back? Uh, the scriptures will even say, you, there's no reason that you have to go to war. Now, if you're compelled to go to war and you, and you can't get out of it, that may be one thing. But there should be no reason to willingly enter into war where that is the case. At least it was, it was never required for an Israelite to do that. He was exempt uh, from war because of these potential blessings of family, the, the, the blessing of being able to start uh, a home. Now, Moses is not saying, notice he's not saying that every single married man should not go to war. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you are about to be married, if you are about to establish a home, then you should not uh, go uh, to war. So it's not saying that married men can't, men can't fight. Uh, but it, it is saying that if, if you are on the verge of coming into those blessings, that uh, you should not uh, go to war. Now, one of the things that you'll notice all the way through all these instructions and laws uh, is that there is an assumption here that it is only men who fight. It's only men who fight. We see this all the way throughout the scriptures. This assumption carries through. We even will see this again. Um, you know, it's not, it's, there's not a, a, a woman who is betrothed to a man uh, who is then exempt uh, there, there's, there's nothing like that given in the instructions. And even the, the instructions for conducting warfare, as we'll see, where you are commanded to leave the women and children alive, but kill the men, the, 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 the very clear assumption is that the men fight. They're combatants, and therefore they can be killed in the war justly. But the women and children don't fight, and therefore they can't be killed. You shouldn't kill them. 
it would be it would be unjust to do so. All the way throughout uh, the scriptures, we have this assumption that it is uh, men who fight in wars. And the reason for this is because the Bible recognizes that there is a difference between the way in which men and women have been made. Men have been made as the stronger vessel, so to speak. Women are the weaker vessel, according to 1 Peter 3. And as such, men as part of the way in which God has made them and the role that God has given to them are made to protect women. Men are made to protect women. And it is actually shameful if men are unable to step up and be courageous, a, a great virtue, particularly for men. If, if men are unable to step up and fight to protect women, but actually rather have women fight for the protection of men in a country, that is a great shame. It is a great shame that men uh, would not be able uh, to step up and to protect women. And that's what we find all the way throughout the scriptures. All the way throughout the scriptures, it is always uh, the men that fight. And so these are the rules for preparation for warfare. Who should fight? Who's exempt? Uh, the, the kinds of things uh, that, that the, the ways in which people are to think before they enter into warfare, not being afraid, but being courageous. Now in verses 10 through 20, in verses 10 through 20, there are the rules for warfare. How are you to conduct yourself when you actually fight? How, how can war be done justly? Now, again, just the fact that there are laws like this that teach us what a just war is, or at least how a just war can be uh, conducted, shows that the Bible does not teach pacifism. It does not teach uh, pacifism. The Bible does not say that all wars are absolutely wrong. As I mentioned from Luke chapter 3, even in the New Testament, this is not the case. It is not wrong for a country to fight uh, in a war. Now, in some ways, the, the laws here are not comprehensive. Uh, this, this doesn't tell us everything about what a just war is or is not. It simply uh, deals with, with some specific aspects of the conducting of a just war. We, we, can infer, uh, uh, we can infer other things, though, from other passages, for instance, in Romans chapter 13, where there, are, where there is the teaching on the role of the government, that the government has been given the sword, the civil magistrate has been given the sword by God to reflect God's justice, to punish evil doing, and to reward righteousness. We can infer from this that if a government uses its sword to do that on an international scale, so not just with its own people, but against another uh, government, that this would in fact be a just war. If, if a government is reflecting the justice of God in its actions against another government in fighting, this is uh, a just war. So, so, and so Deuteronomy is not speaking about everything that would, re, would be related to uh, a, a just war, but it is giving us some things. Now, it's important to note even on that, on that front that uh, even, uh, even offensive wars can be just wars. It's not just defensive wars, but even an offensive war can be a just war in certain circumstances if it is, again, reflecting the justice of God. If it, is, if it is being done uh, with certain qualifications to uphold righteousness and to uh, fight against wickedness. So with that then, what does Moses actually look at here? Here Moses is not uh, so much looking at what would make a war just. He really assumes the war is just. So, And this is partially because when Israel fights in its wars, in, in some ways it's it's told which wars to fight, and there are other things that may indicate what, what wars are good wars and what, what wars are, are wrong wars. What Moses really is after in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is establishing how to conduct yourself when you are fighting in a war that is otherwise just. How can you justly conduct a just war? 
And so what Moses says in verses 10 and 11 is the first thing is that you must offer peace. There must be terms of peace. If there is any way to avoid fighting, that should be taken advantage of. That, that, that it, there, any kind of unnecessary violence would be a violation uh, of the law of God. And even, this even appears to have applied to the people who were conquered in the land of Canaan. Now, you remember when we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 2, we actually, in the Lord's province, read this just today in Deuteronomy chapter 21, when the people of God conquered Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Now, remember, that was the beginning of the conquering of the promised land. Uh, there's a land really to the east of the Jordan, wasn't originally a part of that promised land, but it was the beginning of the conquest is, is uh, the, the significance of it. The, 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 the single conquest of the promised land began with the conquering of those lands uh, to the east of the Jordan. And you'll notice, if you remember just from what we read uh, just several minutes ago, that the people uh, offered Sion peace. They offered him terms of peace, and yet he refused, hardened himself, and then came out and fought, and then God gave them over. Something actually similar happens even in the book of Joshua, where in Joshua 11, verses 18 to 20, I'm just going to read this whole thing so that you can see, because remember, in the book of Joshua, there are many, many nations that are utterly destroyed, and uh, one of the things that is uh, said against, you know, the Bible, against the warfare that's conducted in the Old Testament, is like, you know, this is no different than genocide, this is uh, clearly evil and wicked, but notice what's said in Joshua 11, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And this, so this is a recounting the, the conquest as it's, as it's been accomplished. There was not a city, notice, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle, for it was, the, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what's being said there is uh, the Israelites did destroy all these nations. And we've looked at that from a number of aspects. We've looked at that with, with Deuteronomy 2, with the way in which those that was not an unjust action. Uh, but also from Joshua, we see that they did offer terms of peace. And there was not a single nation or a single city that made peace with Joshua, except for one. And that one city lived. The only city that made, tried to make peace was the only city that, that remained. All of the others, God hardened their hearts so that they would come out and fight against Israel and thereby be destroyed. They, they fought, they were willing to fight, and they, they did not win. And so there are terms of peace that must be offered. And again, the implication is even for um, the Canaanites, which was a special case, as we'll see. Now, we're told that if there, the terms of peace are accepted, then the enemies of the people of God will serve the Israelites uh, and if, if it, the terms of peace are not accepted, then there will be uh, warfare that is, in fact, conducted. Um, this warfare, then, is there are two different parts of this. 12 to 15 is the way in which the Israelites are to conduct warfare in general. So for just enemies uh, in, in any situation. Um, and the way in which Moses delineates this is by saying this is warfare with the nations that are far away. Because the nations that are near are the Canaanites. And there's, again, special laws that regulate this warfare, which is uh, given in verses 16 through 18. And so in general, then, if terms of peace are not accepted, then the rules of engagement for the people of God are namely that they should, if they're coming against a city, that they should lay siege to it. We are told that God will give over all of the enemies of the people of God to them. And this uh, is because God's going to fight for them. Again, the assumption is this is a just war. This is in accordance with the will of God. And notice that the thing that's distinctive here is that all the males are to be killed 
Again, they're assumed to be the combatants or those who can fight. All the women, the children, the livestock, and the plunder, all of that is to remain, is to remain. Uh, the, the Israelites can make use of it. They can, they can enjoy the plunder of their enemies, but they are not to kill the women and the children. Now, one of the things this does then is it provides a firm biblical principle and foundation for the idea that civilians are not to be killed in warfare, that if you are a non-combatant, you are not to be killed. Uh, the, the men can be killed as those who fight, but women and children should not be killed. And this applies today. If you are in a just war, it's a war that is otherwise just, and you kill an enemy soldier, it is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. You have not committed murder in, 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 the sense of, in the sense of violating the Sixth Commandment. If, however, you're fighting an otherwise just war and you kill a woman or a child, you have violated the Sixth Commandment and you have committed murder. That's the principle that's being established here. That in a just war and in the conducting of a war justly, there must be a recognition of a, of a difference between those who can fight and those who cannot, namely uh, the women and uh, the children. Now, we are told that it is different in verses 16 through 18 with those in the land of Canaan. These, these were particularly to be completely destroyed. And again, we've, we've dealt with this in a number of different ways and contexts in, De in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Uh, but just to, to um, reiterate it again, if we were to ask, why is there a difference? Why were the land, the, the enemies within Canaan different than all the other enemies? The reason is because that those on the west side of the Jordan were under the express and explicit condemnation of God, such that it was not so much a regular war that was being fought as an execution that was being uh, executed against them. God, as the judge of the world, had passed a sentence, and the Israelites were merely the executioners. If they failed to execute what God had in fact, the sentence which God in fact had passed, then it was actually a violation of justice and was actually ungodly for, for the people of God not to do that. God, as the judge of all the earth, does have the right to judge. He, he sometimes uses the means of another army. He does this against the Israelites even with, uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he says, and even the Assyrians. Many prophets say, when you, when you see these, these armies come, you need to recognize they may be coming of their own will, but they are an axe in the hand of God. And God is the one who is using them to execute his just sentence. God does this all the time. He does not always use uh, a, 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 an actual physical army. If you think of Sodom and Gomorrah when he rains down fire on, on them, uh, there, there is no intermediate uh, uh, instrument that he uses in conducting his sentencing, but it's essentially no different. Many women and children were killed when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Many women and children were killed when the flood destroyed all of the earth. The reason why it is just for that to happen in those cases is because God is a judge. The, the thing that is being pointed to in all of these instances is that God is the judge of all the earth and the conquest of the land of Canaan was meant to be a picture of the way in which God would judge the world in righteousness on the last day. And therefore, as it serves that theological purpose and it serves that just purpose of God, it is to be executed with faithfulness. Now, now, an important question then that comes up next is, can such wars happen today? 
And the answer to that is no. And that would be for two reasons. First, God does not communicate anymore via special revelation uh, to, to say that one group is under his judgment so permanently that they are to be destroyed. And in fact, we would not expect that to be the case because uh, there is a greater chance of conversion after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit has been sent out such that we would expect all nations are going to come to Christ. And therefore, an entire nation really cannot come under the judgment of God in the same way as it happened uh, in the Old Testament. The second reason why this, this kind of work can never happen is because there is a definitive sign that God has given that he will, in fact, judge the world in righteousness on the last day. So just as there are revelations that happen in the Old Testament, Christ comes and, and is the, the, the definitive revelation of God such that there are no more revelations, so too there is a definitive act of judgment that once and for all points forward to the final judgment that God will conduct on the entire world, and that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in this sense, serves the same prophetic function uh, as the destruction of the Canaanites. It, it reveals God's judgment in a perfect way. God will judge the world in righteousness. How do we know? Well, you could say, I know God will judge the world in righteousness because, look, he, he flooded the entire world. He didn't overlook sin at all. He rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed the Canaanites. All that would be true. That proves that God is a judge and he will judge the world. But the great thing that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will judge the world in righteousness more than any of that is that God did not spare his own son when the weight of sin was placed on him. That is the thing that proves more than anything. If God did not spare his own son when the sins of his people were put on him, how will he spare you, who are not his son, who are his actual enemy, if your sins are found on you? Even Christ was killed when sin was put on him. How much more you? And so there's no reason, there's now no reason for any kind of war like this to be conducted. It has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be conducted uh, anymore. Now, the last two verses are somewhat strange. They deal with uh, trees. Trees. So the way in which um, trees are to be made use of in conducting warfare. You know, it may be kind of strange to think, you know, why would Moses uh, conclude this legislation on on war by speaking of trees? And I think the reason why is because in general, Wars have a tendency to, to produce great uh, devastation and destruction, not just of people, but even on the environment, just of, on cities, on, on all kinds of things. A land is laid waste by war. And one of the things then that Moses is saying here is that uh, even in making use of the land for war, war conducted justly should not just be absolute devastation of everything that there is to be some respect for the land in this way. It's not just to be completely devastated. And this is, in fact, uh, to be made use of by the people of God. And so one of the ways in which we could say that war is to be conducted justly is um, destruction for the sake of destruction uh, is wrong. It's not right. So Moses says, you know, you, you can make use of some trees. If there's trees that don't bear fruit, make use of them for your, for your siege works. It's no problem. But don't just destroy all of the trees, that uh, just uh, all of them without any exception. There are some that can be used for food, and you are to use that for food for yourselves. And the, the implication then, too, is that when the city is taken, then those trees will still be there for use uh, for the city. Destruction for the sake of destruction is wrong uh, in war. 
So all of these are the rules for warfare. And it's, again, it's important for us to think through. It's not something that's very often spoken about, but because it's not spoken about, it, it really in very many ways opens people up, and Christians in particular, uh, to a kind of PTSD in war and a kind of feeling of guilt that persists that really is not necessary. You must understand what is just when it comes to war and the taking of life before you enter a war so that you can be very clear about what you're going to do in the war and, that, and so that you can conduct it in a way that is righteous and godly. And all of these things then, all these things then uh, are to be done in consistency with the law of God and with the justice of God. All of these wars. And even, as I mentioned, uh, even this, particularly with the legislation for the Canaanites, points to the great reality, which is in some way seen in all wars, that God will one day end all wars by judging the world in righteousness which is seen ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this means then too, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are considered a Canaanite. Theologically, that's, that's, that's the purpose. And just as uh, God commands Moses, and then by extension Joshua, to destroy all the Canaanites, to point forward to the final judgment, so too, the warning is this, if you are outside of Christ, you are a Canaanite. You are under the ban, so to speak. You are under the judgment of God unless you turn. Now, the great thing is, is that if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Think of Rahab, who, who was in the very first city that they came to across the Jordan and who had lived an ungodly life before that, yet she was saved because she feared God, even though she was a Canaanite who was under the ban. God always shows himself to be merciful and able to save out of destruction everyone who turns to him and calls upon his name. The legislation for warfare is a warning, is a warning that you would flee the wrath to come and that you would take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant all of you the grace so to do. Let's pray. Lord, how we do thank you for the way in which your word addresses everything. Lord, everything, every topic of life that could come up, every situation that we may face, Lord, your word speaks and gives principles to it so that we could know how to live godly and righteous lives and bearing fruit to you in everything. Lord, give us the grace, give us the zeal, give us the diligence to seek out your word, to search the scriptures that we might understand uh, all of the ways in which your law applies to our lives and give us the grace by your Spirit so to order our lives by your Word. Lord, we, we know that we, we struggle in all of these things and we are very often unable to keep your commandments in and of ourselves, but Lord, we're thankful that your, that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us the Spirit whereby we are given new hearts such that we can grow in obedience. May it be, Lord, even as we think of the difficult, the difficult subjects of taking life in warfare, may it be, O oh Lord, that you would help us to, even here, live in ways that are pleasing to you and help us always to look to the day when you return with all of your angels to end all wars and when we will live in perfect peace. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.